Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today, I am joined by Brian Schneider. Brian has been a longtime associate for Renaissance Golf, uh, Tom Doak's design firm. He's worked on a number of high-profile projects there, as well as consulted with many of the country's best clubs. Uh, he has also done some individual design work. He and some other Renaissance uh, associates, which we talk about, designed Stoughton Bray. And recently, he's done a redesign of the front nine at Lanark uh, Country Club in Philadelphia. One quick note before we get into the podcast, we have a collection of photos up on the website of Banded Dunes. There's Banded Dunes, Pacific Dunes, uh, Pacific Trails, and the new Sheep Ranch. All the proceeds from those photo sales go to the Banded Caddy Relief Fund. So that is going to a good cause, helping the near 350 caddies that have been out of work for a couple weeks now, a handful of weeks. So obviously a good cause in in keeping them on their feet during this uh, tough time that everybody's going through. I hope everybody is safe and well, and hopefully better times are coming. And without further ado, here is Brian Schneider. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Stuff looks cool at uh, North Jersey. It's a neat place. Yeah, it's a really neat place. I mean, they've got... I think seven original greens left, which are all gorgeous, um, pretty wild. You know, the other 11 have been rebuilt at various times and aren't so interesting, but the club has been looking to put that stuff back. So um, there's a lot of work to do there eventually, but we just got into a little bit of bunker work, which was fun. Um, yeah. It didn't have any, it only had like 20 bunkers to begin with. It's a rocky, hilly piece of ground and didn't need much. So he didn't build many bunkers there. So they've got like 55 now. Most of what we'll do with the bunkers is taking stuff out. Yeah. Is it hard to convince people to take bunkers out? It hasn't been there. Um, you know, but I'm not exposed to the membership on a whole. I mean, there may be a bunch of people behind the scenes saying he's going to make it too easy. This is going to be boring. <laughs> but the people I'm dealing with are really excited and, you know, the superintendent is obviously excited that he's going to have fewer bunkers to take care of. Um, it just doesn't need them. You know, a lot of the stuff is just clutter at this point. And they're, they're really unnecessary. The bunkers that were put in originally are plenty. Um, and some of those might even be unnecessary, you know? Yeah. But it, it's not like that where it's, where it's rocky and you've got good topo. Um, it really doesn't need bunkers, you know, and we've added some short grass around the probably more difficult for better players than if they'd missed in a bunker. Um, yeah. So I think it's a great set of, you know, the originals are great greens and it's, it's got enough topography to be interesting. It doesn't need a whole lot of bunkering to, to help. Do they have a, a lot of photos, old photos of the uh, non-original greens? Not really. No, that's the hard part. Um, I've been digging my green chairman. Ken Purine has been doing a lot of digging. And he's come up with some great old picks, uh, but unfortunately, you know, they didn't host any USGA events or any important events back in the day, which seems to be the key to having a bunch of ground level pictures taken. 
Uh, um, so we're we're struggling to find old stuff, and the golf course evolved a lot early on. Um, so pinning down a period we want to go back to is a little tricky too. What do you? But we've do? got a couple decent ground level pictures of what the bunkers looked like to go from and. We've got vague ideas and recollections of a few of the greens, but I think when we get around to it, we'll just have to build something that looks and feels like Travis, maybe stealing ideas from his other golf courses. Yeah, is that is that basically what you do when you don't have you you look at the courses you visited and say, "Hey, you know, I I love this green from here. Let's do something similar to that." I think so. You know, I haven't been in that situation all that much. Um, you know, most of my consulting clients still have a lot of their original greens. So North Jersey's unusual in that they've lost more than half of them. Um, but that's my approach there. You know, first, just try to find out everything we can about what was there, including talking to members that might remember how they used to play and that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm just trying to find out as much as I can about the old greens that used to be there and then match that up with something I might have seen at one of his other golf courses. and. Uh, use that as inspiration what uh you i know hollywood was a big influence in your love of uh travis what are some of your other favorite uh walter travis courses that obviously garden city and hollywood you've worked on but that you've seen in in recent years um yeah hollywood was was the one that really opened my eyes that in the country club of scranton you know i saw that probably 10 years ago for the first time. And I don't know if you've been up there, but they've got 15 original greens that are as good as any set of greens in the country. And they are phenomenal, you know, from pretty subtle ripply stuff on the ground to really wild, severe, you know, some fall away stuff. Um, but it's a beautiful set of greens and the routing's pretty well intact. They redid the bunkers a few years back, which, they didn't try to restore anything in that process, but the greens there are amazing. Um, so between that and Hollywood, those are the places that really lit the fire. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Cape Rundle's an amazing place. Bruce Hepner's done a great job of helping them restore and preserve that golf course. You know, they've got, you know, that one's really well intact as well as any, I would say. Uh, and that's what everybody can go see, which is, you know, it is, it's such a cool place. You know, it's, it's packed, into a really tight acreage. I don't even know what par is, but it's a tiny golf course, but there's plenty of golf there for anyone. Um, you know, that's, that's America's North Barrick. It's just funky and quirky and fun, you know, and such a cool vibe. And you're right. Anybody can go play there and run into a president. Maybe. Yeah. Um, I come up with like a list of five courses I want to see every year. And that one's been on it for three years. It's just like, (laughs) I just have to get up there and now, you know, with what's going on in the world, this is uh this year might get washed out of it too. So yeah. it's uh it, that one is is high on on my list of places to see. Uh I'm curious about, you know, everybody, oh, this great set of greens, great set of greens. What when you try and distill down what makes a great set of greens into like, you know, why why if the key features or principles of what makes in your mind a great set of greens at a golf course? Uh, a couple things, you know, the, the first thing that pops into my mind is, you know, just the shots 
around the greens when you miss a green or the shots into the greens. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about strategy and how you know, the green sets up. You know, if the pin's back here, you want to drive it right so you can get at that hole location, that sort of thing. And that's great. You know, having a variety of hole locations within a green that dictate or suggest different strategies from day to day is a great thing, especially at a members club. Um, but a lot of people don't hit greens very often, you know, and, and if it's boring when you miss a green, even if the strategy's interesting off the tee and, and setting up the approach shot, you know, if, if there's not something interesting to do once you miss a green, um, then it doesn't really hold your attention long-term, especially again at a member's club where you're playing every day. So I think, you know, the variety of shots around a green, um, so that missing right is different than missing left is different than missing short is missing long, you know, and where you want to miss the green changes from day to day as well. I think that's important. Um, to me, one of the big things is variety throughout this set of greens. So, you know, it's, it's not 18 of a type from beginning to end that you come across a little bit of everything. And when you walk off the 18th green and, are driving home afterwards, you can remember a lot of the greens individually that they don't just blend together as a set. Um, I'm trying to think of places like that, you know, Indian wood, the old course at Indian wood in Michigan. I remember going, walking around there years ago, you know, you get to the first green. Wow. This is a really cool green. The second green, man, this is a really cool green. By the time you're halfway through, you, I sensed a pattern and boy, this is a really neat green. So cool that they, did it 17 times um then 18 is totally different there but but there are some greens like that where you know you always have to miss short or um you know they all slope back to front even if they have cool contour in them. you know there are a lot of courses like that where the greens individually are great but as a set you're not running into something different from hole to hole yeah um, it, so you're talking about maybe a set of greens that they're all you know, severely sloped back to front and, you know, they, and I think obviously certain construction methods would lend themselves to certain types of slopes, like the, you know, the, the push up, the kind of the big, uh, bold features of a Langford Moreau green, the big edges make it tough to have fall away greens. Yep. Um, and, and that might be a criticism of, of, of theirs. Yeah, you know, Wingfoot's another example that pops into my head. The, the West Course, it's, you know, that's a great set of greens, really severe. But, you know, if you miss short 18 times there, you've done pretty well. You know, it, you, you can't be missing right or left at Wingfoot all day long. You're in for a long day. Seminole's kind of the same way. Um, yeah, and, and to your point, Langford Moreau, you know, Banks, Rayner to a certain degree, you know, missing right and left is trouble. And long in a lot of cases, you know, that the the miss is all the smart miss is almost always short. Um, yeah, I think the best sets of greens have more variety in that where you want to miss, including long. You know, Garden City has a handful of greens where missing long is the good miss, and that you don't see very often. But that's really cool. Yeah, I think the thing that is cool about that is it's it's that idea of counterintuitiveness and also tricking like that where it doesn't reveal itself uh, 
or upon the first play. A lot of times you learn after you've played it at, at least once, maybe a handful of times, where the best place to miss, like, you know, certain greens is missing short. I, it, something that jumps to mind is like the Stonewall North, the first green, is mm-hmm. if you miss short there, I, I played there a few years ago in the mid-am and I remember I hit a bad drive and I had to chip and I had this 30-yard pitch to the and it and it was downwind and and I'm just like oh my god this is the worst place I could be you know because (laughs) it's just rocketing away but the only way you know that is if you played it a a handful of times and it's not something I picked up on my practice round because you're just going through it and you're you know you hit it in there and you know if you didn't hit it short you don't really know sometimes Yeah, and the majority of amateurs miss short unintentionally. You know, the, they rarely get past the hole. It, you know, that applies to pros too, but to a much lesser degree. Uh, but most amateurs never get past the hole. Um, so making past the hole the place to miss is, to your point, really, really counterintuitive um, and probably uncomfortable for a lot of people, which is why people may have an aversion to fall away greens or one of the reasons. But, um, you know, the, the original Redan at North Barrick, you know, anytime I play that hole, I'm taking an extra club and trying to pull it long left. Um, if I don't hit the green, I've got a reasonable chance of getting up and down from back there. You miss anywhere else and you're dead. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so, think, but I think that's interesting. And a lot of times I feel like people will label greens unfair that are ones that require thought and sometimes multiple plays to understand how to play them. Do you, do you feel that as an architect sometimes? Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and, and you hit on the problem is that a lot of people, especially nowadays, a lot of people, when they're traveling to play golf, they're traveling somewhere once and then going somewhere else the next time and somewhere else the next time. And apart from the place you play most often, you know, you're not getting a chance to learn the nuances of a lot of the places you play when you're just balancing around from one to another. Um, and you know, a place like St. Andrews takes dozens or hundreds of rounds to really reveal itself and to be, to allow you to get the most out of the playing experience. You know, I, I feel bad for people that go to St. Andrews once and their caddy points at something in the distance, stop every tee and tells them where to hit the shots because it's such a complex place that only gets more interesting and more fun the more you get to know it. But that's not the way a lot of people play golf these days. Um, but you're right. It's just, it, you know, subtlety takes time to, to understand and it takes more than one round to appreciate. Your, your question about unfair, uh, people deeming greens unfair made me think of a, a round I played at Hollywood a couple of years ago. Um, have you been there? I don't know if you've been. I haven't. That's um, one of my one of my courses on my list. Good, good. Hope you got a big list. Um, it's, it's well, I I do five. I set up five because I feel like that's a reasonable number that I could actually achieve in a year. And then you know, five means there's a bunch around the five. Yeah, the five you find leads to thirty more. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. It, it's like five, but then it's the surrounding area included. Yeah. Um, well, I played Hollywood a couple of years ago with with a a great amateur player too, really. But a, you know, a great mid am and a great junior player. Um, and we got to the seventh hole, which is a, a really good 
mid-length par five, which those guys played essentially as a mid-length par, par four. Um, you know, both hit long drives, both had mid irons in, if I remember right. Um, but the green is really kind of deep and narrow and angles from front right uphill to the back left. And it's like four tiers. The back tier is really tiny. And they'd put the pin in the back that day. Um, and it probably falls, I don't know, six or seven feet from back to front. Like if you miss long, you're dead. And of course the mid-am kind of blocked his tee shot out to the right. It hit a really good shot from over there and, and ended up in the rough past the hole and was dead, you know, had nothing. And proceeded to hit his next shot kind of loosely trickled off the front of the green and was pitching back up the hill with his fourth and walked off just shaking his head. Like, you know, what a stupid green. You know, I really like the golf course so far, but that green is stupid. That hole sucks. You know, it's like number one, it's a part five. You just hit a six or a seven iron into. And number two, you missed in the one place you couldn't miss. And if you ever played it again, you would know it can't be above the hole on that, on that hole. Um, but you know, his judgment was that green's stupid. They should blow that up. I hate this course because of that kind of thing. You know, uh, wasn't his fault at all. It was the golf course's fault. But it, it is interesting how people find something else to blame as opposed to thinking about it for a second and realizing they could have missed anywhere else. Um, it's. But, it, I think it partially stems from you know the Amer how America the main format of the game stroke play versus match play i agree yeah i think that you know, i don't keep score ever um but i think you're right i think you know if he would have just lost the hole there and it was a you know it was a casual match no one was competing for anything but yeah if you're in a match with somebody and you have to take a, a seven when you're hoping to make a four um, it's a little harder to swallow than if you just lose one hole and move on to the next one you know? Yeah, like in that yeah, the, situation, the, spirit of the game is different in America than it is in the UK. Certainly, in that situation, yeah. If if he makes a six and is the guy he's playing makes a four, and he realizes, you know, it was going to be really hard to get up and down either way from back there for four, and it, it's a completely different feeling walking off the the green. And and that's I, you know, one of the things that I always say. Oh, it's a great match play course. It it would be a a terrible stroke play course. Like what what does that even mean? You know. I'm curious about that too. You know, there, there's a, I haven't been to a hoopie yet, but you know, it's certainly marketed as a match play club and a match play golf course. And I can't for the life of me understand really what that means or what an architect would do differently. If it, it was, if it was a stroke play club, for instance, you know, I, I, I don't know what that means. I think designing for match play in general makes is, is a worthy goal that we shouldn't be designing for stroke play to begin with. Um, so I'm curious what he did differently there that he wouldn't have done if it hadn't been labeled a match play course. So what he said to me was that he felt he could, he had a little bit more freedom on the greens, which is kind of exactly what we're talking about where he felt like okay. he could, he could build a little bit more boldly with a little bit more severe con uh, contours because nobody's going to play ping pong and write an eight on the card. All right. I'll so buy that. That's, that's what, that's what he said at least. Okay. So that makes sense. Um, you know, we, you, you brought up the old course earlier and <clears throat> I was, I was curious to say you were with somebody that 
knew nothing about golf architecture, beginning golfer, and you you were gonna you had the budget you could go to five courses to show them, you know, kind of introduce them to the game of golf and golf architecture. Where would you go? The old course is certainly number one um, for a million reasons, but mostly because I think it's still the most fun and interesting place in the world to play, which to me is pretty remarkable. You know, there, there aren't many things in this world uh, that you can point to the first example and say, you know, 600 years later, that's still the best of its type. They absolutely nailed it the first time around. And I, I feel that way about the old course. I think it's magical that way. Um, and it's it's such a different style of golf that even 600 years later, no one else has quite been able to match the style of golf that you find at St. Andrews. Um, and it, you know, it, it breaks a million so-called rules of modern architecture in the process. And I think that's important for someone to understand when learning about architecture is that there, there really aren't and shouldn't be many rules to what you can do. Um, and for that reason, I think North Bear can probably be another place I would take someone while you're there, you know, for, for all the odd, quirky, weird things that you see there and don't see anywhere else that make that golf course as fun as any place you could ever hope to play. Um, and it's beautiful. You know, it's a beautiful spot. You're, you're, never more than a par five from the ocean when you're playing there. Um, the wind is always blowing. People play quickly. Um, there are a lot of lessons to be learned in North Barrick too. Um, now it gets a little tough. You know, the national obviously is, is probably my favorite golf course in America and another place where, you know, I wrote years ago that you can learn more in the first six holes of the national that you can learn on any golf course except for St. Andrews. And I think that's true. I mean, if you go through the first six holes there, you've got really a little bit of everything and a bunch of stuff most golfers have never seen before. And all works beautifully. It's so much fun to play. Um, you know, just the scale of the scale of the golf there, the, the wild contouring of those greens, you know, the shortest hole in the golf course has, I don't think it's the biggest green, but it's right up there. You know, the sixth hole, um, it's the scariest green it is it's not yeah it's great yeah each little target is really tiny and the the penalty for missing where you want to be is can be pretty severe um especially if you're on the green in the wrong place that's that's an but, example of a green many people would think is unfair <clears throat> you're probably right you're probably right but it's so much fun you oh. know it's so much fun and I, uh, laughing at your buddy when he's on the wrong side of the, the wrong side of the green you know if he's on the right side and the hole's cut left just watching him try and get it anywhere close is a lot of fun the last time i played it i uh the pin was right um right in front of that bunker and mm-hmm. i i came up like two yards short and the spins down and i'm in the front and I, I i had this i looked at it i looked at the putt and i'm looking and i'm like if i try and make this if it doesn't go in, it's going into the bunker. And I ended up, I was like so happy. I, I was like, I have to lay up. And I like laid up to 12 feet and made the 12 footer. But I, it was, I was so, I had so much fun doing that. But so many people would say, this is dumb, you know? And I, I felt such, such a, like, it felt like a birdie going to the next hole. 
yeah, trying to make the best score doesn't always mean trying to make the next shot. You know, it, it's like, where can I leave this to give myself the best odds of making a good score as opposed to a terrible score? And, and on that whole, you know, who knows where your, your opponent was, but odds are good they were in a tricky situation too. And, and uh, there aren't any easy up and downs on that hole or easy two putts. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great green. It is. It's such a great place. I mean, it's just, and that's another one that you just have to play your walk over and over and over and over to try and pick it up. I'll never forget the first time walking it. Just trying to take everything in in one trip around is absolutely impossible. You know. Um, the the first time I played it was U.S. Open week a few years ago um, when it was at Shinnecock, and um, <laughs> I played it and. I mean, you know, my buddy, a couple of my buddies were like, what do you think? I'm like, you know, honestly, like, I don't even know what to think. I, I, uh-huh. There's so much going on. And I was supposed to leave town on uh, on Friday morning and I got invited back out for Friday. And and I originally turned it down. This is like a thing oh. I do. I, I was like, oh, I have to fly out. And, and a couple of my buddies go, Andy, if you don't change your flight, I'm I'm not going to be speaking to you for a couple of months, <laughs> but I was so happy. I, I moved my flight. It was actually one of the few times I've ever bought a refundable flight. And, you know, just the second time around, you pick up so much. And, you know, I got lucky to play a third time. And, and I played that time with, with a uh, uh, hickory driver and uh, oh. a balada ball. And all of a sudden I was playing the member tees and hitting from where, you know, 12 to 15 handicaps hit from. And it was all of a sudden I'm wearing out long irons and I was nice. like, holy cow, this is a completely different golf course now. Yeah. I'm sure you know, what's brilliant. One of the brilliant things about the, the national that a lot of people don't talk about is the way he used the ground contours in affecting your tee shots. You know, there, there's a lot of, you know, 16 is the obvious example. There's a lot of potential blindness. If you drive in the wrong spot, mm-hmm. um, you know, the ground, the ground contours are just, used so beautifully there and so smartly that yeah i would i would guess that with your 2017 driver you're hitting it well past a lot of those things that really mattered off the tee with your hickory club Uh, well that was the thing is i'd always heard about seven you know like everybody oh 17's the greatest hole and for the modern golf like pro or high level amateur it's it's not the greatest hole because the the tee shot you just hit it as hard as you can up the left, and yep. all of a sudden I have this hickory. I saw bunkers that I hadn't seen the first two times I played. Like all of a sudden yep. I'm looking, I'm like, holy, like this is like a really hard decision. I don't know what to do, you know. Yep. And it brought back so much of the thought off the tee. I felt like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's cool that you did that, and yeah, it, it, it's just such a fascinating place. Regardless of how far you hit it, there's there's just a lot going on there. That uh, well, and that's kind of the thing. No place with, like it. You know? I think when you look at the what's going on in golf is with with all the distance gains and and everything. The best way to defend against an assault of wedges is with greens with some slope in them. Mm-hmm. And it seems mm-hmm. like we're our society's kind of pushing away from that. Yeah, it's ironic. Even well, especially at the elite level. So we had a chance to work with the tour down in Houston last year and and they're very strict about how much slope they'll accept in their pinnable parts of the green. You know, they 
they're reluctant to go above 2% slope, which, you know, to us isn't steep at all. But the best players are rarely playing hole locations that are located in the spot where if you miss the green to one side or the other, the green's racing away from you faster than you'd like it to be and to make it difficult to stop a ball. You know, and, and when you put hole locations in flat positions, where you miss matters a lot less. Um, and it's ironic that, that those setting up courses for the best players in the world are protecting them from that sort of thing. You know, it's, it's something that a lot of golfers have to deal with every day at their clubs or at the courses they play often, but the best players in the world, apart from, you know, Augusta and, you know, if the U S open is at Shinnecock or Oakmont or a handful of places, um, or the, the open championship, you know, the, the best players in the world are rarely encountering whole locations and steep spots where you can't miss the wrong side, you know, and that, it's a shame. It'd be, the game's a lot more interesting when, Missing to the right of the green and the green, you know, the, the green sloping away from you over there really means something. Um, and those guys don't run into that that often. And they've got they've got the game to deal with that, you know. And it would be fun to watch them deal with those circumstances and and deal with a different set of challenges than they're they're typically faced with. I, that was one of the most amazing things watching uh, Royal Melbourne. Oh. And it was like evident from the very first tee shot of the first day that this was going to be a little bit different when, when the guys drove it up near the first green on the composite course. Yeah. What a great hole to start with, you know, um, might be my favorite hole in the golf course. One of my favorites in the world. It's such a brilliant little hole yeah. and where you landed mattered. I mean, Richard Forsyth is an amazing greenkeeper, and, you know, he does a brilliant job with that golf course from day to day. And the way it was set up for the tournament was just perfect um but it it seemed to take the americans a couple days to figure out where they needed to miss and that that placing your ball actually matters there because the ground is so firm the greens are fast and there's a lot of slope in them um it took them a few days to get the hang of it i think and that that was reflected by the results it it totally it, it was you could see it happening as like day by day the america like you know the first day internationals really took it to them and, and just day by day it seemed like the americans were just figuring it out a little bit more each day it sure felt that way yeah i don't know if it was coincidence or if that was reality but there was one american that had to figure it out from the get-go <laughs> yeah. and you know he's the best player in the last four decades um and you know and that's the kind of thing, as a golf viewer, which I frankly I don't watch the tour much these days anymore. Um, but that's the kind of thing that we're losing out on as spectators. You know, watching great players face challenges like that, where they have to think and they have to position their ball and they have to work their way around a golf course and think their way around a golf course, as opposed to just smashing as far as they can and hitting short irons. In. Um, you know. It, the, I miss, you know, I, I've been watching a bunch of the old Shell's Wonderful World of Golf matches that have been put up on YouTube somewhat recently. And you can't watch one of those matches without somebody hitting a long iron or a fairway wood into par fours. You know, when's the last time you saw that on TV in America? It just doesn't happen anymore. Um, and it was such a different skill set that the players needed to have with them and that we got to watch as spectators. And, and it's unfortunate that, you know, Brooks Kepka and Tiger Woods, and Dustin Johnson, and they can hit amazing golf shots, 
um, they're just not asked to do it that often. And that's unfortunate. And that's one of the things It's one of the most memorable shots that I can think of in the last decade was uh, at Bellary Brooks Kepka hit, you know, it was like a 200, it was a 16 or 17, the par three, it's like two thirty, two forty. He had a four iron just flagged it. And it was just, it's amazing. And that was the difference in the championship, you know, is this long iron play and, you know, nobody else hit it, hit as great of a shot as Brooks did. And it was like, yeah, this is the guy that, that should win. You know, it, it was yep. in that, Donald Ross book, Golf Has Never Failed Me. I'll never forget reading the quote. He's, you know, Long Irons is the true, like, separator of good and great players. And I think that, obviously, over the years, you've worked on a ton of great courses from, you know, and you've built a lot of new golf courses with uh, with Tom and also on your own. Um, how I'm curious how your thoughts and beliefs on golf architecture have evolved since you know you're young and i think they're always evolving you know um it's hard to think back and put myself back in my own head 20 years ago but you know i think when you're starting out when you're exposed to architecture you're attracted to the books you read you know you look at thomas's book and they're all the cool diagrams of alternate root holes and and you get a pretty quick feel for two-dimensional strategy um and those things look really neat on paper and you know it's a little harder to execute in the field you know the alternate routes don't always work as well as they do in in drawings and and what separates one route from another doesn't really work as well in drawings um and i think the thing i've really learned over the years certainly with the help of tom and my coworkers, is that just building interesting contour creates good golf. You know, you don't necessarily have to build strategy into a golf hole. You don't have to define a way for players to play it. Um, risk reward isn't always the most interesting sort of golf. Typically, if you just build cool contour, especially around the greens, um, then you've got good golf and it can be that simple. Um, Hey, we didn't get so through I, the the five. Oh yeah, we didn't. I don't know how many I got to. We'll go. We'll go back, but keep talking about contour. You know, it just jumped, popped into my mind. Well, the you know the one place I'm going to cheat on this one. I'm going to use a time machine and and keep talking about contour, but also include another golf course. I'm going to go back to 1934 to Augusta National when it was first built. Um, you know there were. 20 bunkers or so somewhere around there 22 bunkers um nothing but short grass you know two heights of cut probably um and it was all about contour and short grass you know the the greens were really wild and severe and had a bunch of interesting hole locations and the, the way you played the hole varied from day to day and the way you played the hole very dramatically if you missed where you wanted to hit your tee shot um like the old course. I mean, it was very much inspired by the old course and a lot of the holes even are almost templates of holes from St. Andrews and other places. But, um, but you know, that was the, one of the best examples of how contour is the most important and interesting part of the game. And it didn't need 
many bunkers whatsoever to make it interesting. It didn't need a rough. It was miles wide. Um, but you know, the contour on the greens matter and the contour in the fairways mattered. You know, if, if you, if your ball got offline, it would take a slope in the fairway and just keep running into worse trouble. And, you know, what they've done now and what a lot of courses do by narrowing things up is you keep players closer to the center of the hole and don't let balls run into trouble. Um, Marion's a great example of that. You know, there's a lot of side slope in Marion, especially across the road. And when they narrowed the fairways up for the U.S. Open, that just kept more players closer to the center of the hole. And if you mowed that entire golf course short from wall to wall, I think it'd be a harder golf course because balls would roll into places that you don't want to be. But the rough keeps you closer to where keeps you closer to the ideal line into those greens. And Augusta was very much that way too, before they added the rough. Do you feel like there's any examples, uh, as Augusta exists today, really good examples of contour that you're talking about? Um, you know, I touched on that with the national, but national also has 300 bunkers, whatever they have. Um, there are places, I mean, there aren't many places that have, 20 or fewer bunkers these days and memorial park is one of those but it doesn't nearly have the fairway contour that augusta has um i'm trying to think of something off the top of my head that's that that level of simplicity um old town would jump to my mind yeah you know and i haven't seen that even though it's a couple hours for me and that's been a quarantine goal of mine is to try and get up there and see it at some point um yeah i'm sure that's a good example that looks like a a piece of property similar to Augusta. Um, yeah, I mean, Augusta's hilly, you know, it's, it's hilly, which obviously a lot of people have talked about and know about. But, um, yeah, it's hard to think of another great golf course with that much elevation change. Um, and by all accounts, Old Town fits that bill. What, what makes building a great golf course with that type of elevation change difficult? That's a good question. Um, you know, just attacking attacking the side slopes in a variety of ways, I think, um, so that you're not just going straight up and straight down the hill. You know, downhill holes are fun. Uphill holes, not so much. And avoiding holes like 18 at Augusta where you're just climbing straight up the hill to get back to the clubhouse there aren't many great holes in the world that do that. Um, so I guess clubhouse location is important part too. If you put the clubhouse (laughs) on top of the hill, you're, you're already stacking the deck against you a little bit. Um, Olympic club is a pretty good example. You know, I, I can't say I love that golf course, but I really admire the way the golf course works around that hill. You know, it's a steep slope, mostly in one direction, especially on the front nine. There's a lot of, a lot of slope there. And, you know, he found a way to route, along the side slopes and in a way that really favors somebody who can turn the ball into the slope, you know, and then that's become a lost art. Certainly. Um, you know, the way good players hit the ball now, they hit it high enough where roll is less of an issue than it used to be. But you know, when I played it 20 years ago, you know, if you hit a fade on a, one of the holes that was sloping left to right and turning left to right, then you are going to find yourself with a really long second shot in. And you know, holes that tilt from side to side rather than going straight up or straight down are really interesting there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard, you know, every property is different. It's hard to generalize about those things. But I think the more variety you can get in 
holes that play along and across the slope as opposed to up and down. So, it kind of reminds you know, what you're uh, talking about reminds me a little bit of what you guys did at Stoughton Bray with that knob on the back nine. Yeah. Yeah, you might be right. Um, Because you play all around it, yeah. Yeah, trying to incorporate that. That feels as much like what Mackenzie did at Cypress Point or the Valley Club, where there's a few prominent features in the property, and he jammed as many greens and tees on them as he could. And Royal Melbourne's got a bit of that. Um, You know, Cypress is a great example, that, that kind of large central dune in the middle of the property that three plays up against, you know, four tees are there, six comes back to it, seven plays off it, eight plays around it, nine plays onto it, you know, 10 plays off it, 11 back to it, 12 plays off it. You know, he, he crams so much golf into that one central feature, and he did the same thing. He did at, at Augusta, too. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And I, you know, I don't think we were channeling McKenzie in any way, but, but when you've got a property with a big feature like that, you try to bring it in play as much as you can. Um, and that was one of our goals at Stoughton Bray. Yeah, before we get to number five on your list, talk about Stoughton Bray and, and the experience. You know, you have been a longtime associate at Renaissance Golf, and and this was a project where you and and Brian uh, Slonick, uh, Eric Iverson, Don Plasek, and and also Blake helped out. Uh, Blake Conant helped out designed that golf course. How was it like? What was it like? Um, th- was it drastically a different experience than what it is like uh, on a on a Tom Doak design, or or was it? You know, was it? Did it feel pretty similar? Except you guys were making the final call. Yeah, that's a big accept. <laughs> um, yeah, Stoughton Bray is a, a really special place to me, and particularly right now. Um, you know, when we're working for Tom, you know, Tom's always a parachute in a certain way that that when you've got a great editor coming behind you, um, you can push things a little further, and you can you can do dare to do something different and do something wild, do something severe, knowing that if you push it too far, you've got a brilliant editor coming to make it right. And, and Tom gives us so much freedom to be creative, uh, which makes it a real pleasure to work for him. But it's also really comforting knowing that if you do something stupid, he's going to fix it. <laughs> and, and at Stoughton Bray, you know, I had Eric and Blake and obviously Brian and Don as well. Um, we all had each other to be that sounding board, which was really important. But yeah, your, your accept um, is a big deal. And, and having to make the final call feels a lot different than, than just building freely and pushing, pushing your boundaries and trusting that Tom is going to make the appropriate edits and and, you know, and, and which isn't to say that Tom's merely an editor. That's not the case at all. Um, but the way Tom allows us to work gives us a lot of freedom to, to experiment and, and mess around and, uh, and eventually get it a really good final product. So Stoughton was cool in that regard. And, you know, I really had to learn to trust myself and my instincts. And, you know, I, I, I caught myself thinking a lot, boy, what would Tom have to say about this? And I 
you know, I've got enough experience with him now that I can have some idea of how he might feel about some of the things I build. Um, but I certainly leaned on Eric quite a bit throughout that process and Blake, both of which were on, on site a lot. You know, Brian is pretty well tied up at, at the loop up North and, and Don was pretty busy as well, but they both spent time there. But um, yeah, I definitely leaned on, on those guys a lot the things I was building and had to sign off on, which we do with Tom too. I mean, we're always on site a lot together and we're constantly talking about what each other's building and looking at everything that's being built. So it's, it's always been part of the process, but when Tom's not there as the, as the final editor, it definitely has a different weight to it. Talk, talk about the collaborative aspect of that project is something I'm kind of fascinated with thinking about is how, you know, we, we don't see the, it, almost was like a throwback project where you guys, you, you know, you don't see as much, there's so much solo design ever since it became a profession is solo design. And this is an example of, of really a group of designers. Yeah, and that part for us, isn't any different than what we typically do. You know, there, there are four names on the, you know, listed after designer for that golf course, but, um, but everything we do is a collaboration to a certain degree. Um, you know, certainly on Tom's projects, he is at the top of the, at the top of the heap and making all the important decisions. And he's got the, you know, he handles the routing, you know, 98% of the routing, which we edit to a certain degree on the ground with him. Um, but he's responsible for a lot of that. And in, in the case of Stoughton Bray, it was a collaboration between Brian, Eric, Don, and I, um, the routing process we all had the maps and we all messed around with them and then shared them with one another and and picked the bits and pieces of every one that worked best and we kind of cobbled that together and what we came up with at the end um so that was the biggest difference you know that it was a collaborative routing process mm -hmm. which um is is not really the same as our projects with Tom, where he's responsible for most of that. How drastically different were was everybody's routing? All over the map, all over the map, and and I'm sure we all came up with a handful of routings we liked. Um, but frankly, you know, the the key to coming up with the routing we did was squeezing as many holes into that portion of the property you talked about at the far end, where the big hill is squeezing as many holes as we could down there. Number one, finding interesting holes that take advantage of that cool topography down there and then creating as much space as we could in the flatter ground to give those holes a little bit of roomies that, you know, if we had to squeeze one or two more holes up in the flats, things would have felt pretty cramped. So, you know, I think it was Brian Slonick that came up with the idea of running the 12th hole across the far end of the property, which was a really big ridge before we started and that took a lot of earthwork to to create that hole but that allowed us to get one if not two more holes in that end of the property than most of the routings had thus freeing up more space to to let the other holes in the flatter part of the property breathe a little bit more than they would otherwise so that was the that was the trick to making it work was getting as many holes as we could down in that end of the property yeah it's it's a cool cool <coughs> golf course it's really neat greens and the, the, I I love that back section of the property, but the first few holes are great too. You know, you get those, you got a great mixture of greens out there. Um, what we were talking about with green contour applies definitely there, where there's a a wide variety of greens and and 
you know, different slopes and, and different questions each of them ask. I appreciate that. Yeah, we had fun building them. And, and I think we all contributed ideas to that part of the process. And John Scott did too. You know, John was out there a lot with us and great guy, really smart. Um, he was very involved in the process and, and even encouraged us to dial things up a little bit to, to make the greens more interesting, more exciting. Um, so it was a real pleasure working with John and his family and being a part of what they've created up there. It's a really special place. So uh, let's get to number five. Number five. Okay. Um, yeah, I mentioned Garden City already. That would be a place I would take people. Um, almost for the opposite reasons of, you know, it, it's kind of the opposite of the national in some ways and the opposite of Augusta and that there's very little ground contour there. The greens are pretty subtle. Um, the hazards are totally different, but really unique in American golf. And, you know, Garden City reminds me a lot of Walton Heath, which is one of my favorite places in the UK and Woodhall Spa, where we've been really lucky to work. Um, there's a simplicity about all of those places. You know, the, the property at Woodhall Spa is really quiet, very similar to Garden City, but there's great texture there. Walton Heath is similar. You know, the, most of that property runs to the road that separates the clubhouse from the golf course. And the greens there are largely just laying on the ground. There's not a lot of contour in them. But so many of those greens tilt subtly towards that road. Uh, and that's rarely back to front when you're playing the golf holes and garden cities are the same way. There are a lot of golf holes, you know, the, the property of garden city is pretty quiet. And a lot of the greens like the 10th and the 15th are just laying on the ground, but the ground is falling at three, four or 5% to the side and to the back in some cases. And that's a shot you don't see very often. Um, there's just a beautiful simplicity to approaching the hole on a, you know, the 10th is one of my favorite holes. You know, the green falls away left to right, front to back. Um, and you really have to think about where you want to miss again. And, and that's another hole where missing long is better than missing short. Um, but that's a really hard thing to get yourself to do, especially when you can't quite see what's going on up there, you know, and you're not quite sure what's behind the green. And uh, it's, it's just a lot, a lot of fun to play golf that way. And there's that deception aspect of it. And, until you know the hole, you don't know that the ball's going to take a bigger bounce forward than you're used to because it doesn't look like it. Yep. Um, yeah. And you've got, you know, and a hole like that too. And, and the, the superintendent, Mike McAlevey does a fantastic job and he's, he has really firmed that place up and it's playing better and better every year that he's there. Um, you know, it, as much as any golf course in America, the, the 30 yards in front of some of those greens matters a lot because that's where you need to land your ball in some days. Um, and he's done a beautiful job of tightening that up and firming it up. And you really do have to think about the contour in front of the greens, not just the putting surfaces themselves, but you've got to think about what's going on short of the greens, which is something you have to do in the UK all the time when it's windy and the ground is firm. And if the wind's at your back, you know, you can't fly a ball onto the green and expect it to stop. So you've got to, consider the contour in front of the green and oftentimes hit a shot that takes advantage of that contour and negotiates it somehow. And golf's a lot more fun when, when the ball's on the ground and rolling and you've got to, you've got to think 
through the contours over a, a much broader area than just what's on the green itself. It, it, something that makes me that I love most about Garden City is that, in a way, you know, the Augusta's topography is just astounding, and and same with National, where you have this this amazing okay. site. Is the thing that Garden City kind of screams to me is that you know, great architecture is attainable almost anywhere. It is. Yeah, it is. There are a handful of places like like that. And Chicago golf club is another one for me that, you know, people call that a flat site. It's not, it's it's not not a bad site at all, but it, you know, there is a simplicity about it that most of the holes there, well, maybe all the holes there or none of them are, are great because of the topography, you know? And you could say the same about Garden City. It's just the the architecture is what really shines at places like that. And and the architecture is really simple at Garden City. And it's a little more manufactured at at Chicago. But nonetheless, you know, the things that are built in Chicago are built almost entirely for golf reasons as opposed to aesthetics or anything else. Um, they just built cool features for golf and didn't mess with the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, this is another perfect example. And I think Stoughton Bray, in a, in a similar vein, an example of that, where, you know, you can have really good architecture on, you know, not the best piece of land. It doesn't have to be sandy and dramatic. No, you're right. You're right. And we, you know, I don't know that we would have moved a lot more earth if we'd had a bigger budget, but the budget was limited and we really had to focus on spending money wisely and, and that included bunkers. I mean, there aren't many bunkers at Stoughton Bray either. Um, and frankly, I don't, I can't think of anywhere where I'd add more and probably a few I would take out at this point, if anything. Um, but yeah, it, it had to be, yeah, it had to be designed with budget in mind, both from construction and maintenance. Um, and I think that that gave us a really good product. Uh, and a project that has really, kept my attention through the Chicago winter and now uh, through this uh, virus I've, I constantly find myself seeking out <laughs> photos of is uh, I hope I'm pronouncing it correct. I've, I've seen the name so many times. <laughs> Larnick. Nope. <laughs> You're close. I've heard a lot of different, different attempts. <laughs> it's, it's Lanark. Lanark. Okay. Lanark. Yeah, it's, a, it's a Welsh word. Um, most people don't get it right the first time around, but it's Lanark. It's it's funny. I, somebody on their greens committee emailed me years ago about it, and it's just amazing to see how it's coming. And something I wanted to ask you about is, you know, the first thing that you notice is the striking style that you you and Blake went with there. And I wanted to ask if that was you know kind of an, an intentional move to. You know, it's very different from the in vogue, you know rugged exposed look that we see all over the place and in, in most new projects it's a different look certainly and and it was intentional um you know it it evolved a little bit and you know every project we do kind of goes that way you take a few holes to sort out what the style's going to be and um but yeah it was it was my intention to to build some above ground features as opposed to building a bunch of bunkers. You know, it's 15, Lanark is 15 minutes from Marion and surrounded by a ton of great golf. You know, Philadelphia is just loaded with great golf courses and a lot of the best stuff was done by Flynn. And, you know, you think about Marion, you think about the Flynn courses and you think about 
the flash sand bunkers and a similar aesthetic. And the club was, has every step of the way put an extraordinary amount of trust in me and encouraged me to, to do what I wanted to do and thought was best. They've been fantastic. And we're a hundred percent behind trying something different that wouldn't feel like anything else in Philadelphia. Um, and that was one of my goals just to create, you know, to give it a different identity in a place that's chock a block with great golf. Um, and we ran with that and they, they've given us a lot of latitude to, to do some different stuff there. And I'm sure they scratched their heads a little bit when they would come out and see some of the things we built. And we've experimented quite a bit there and built a lot of crap that the members saw overnight and freaked out and we wiped out the next day. Um, but we're just trying a bunch of different things and, and, and stumbling on some things that we think are really cool and, and uh, hopefully a bunch of stuff that people haven't seen before in that area. I mean, I love that, that idea because I, I feel like most, a lot of times what happens is, is in that situation is, well, this is what the clubs around here do. So we should probably do that too. And that becomes almost a group think versus the idea of creating your own unique identity as a golf club. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, Lanark is a really different project for me. You know, all of my other consulting clients are, you know, have, have club courses that were built by Travis or Ross or Banks. And you're great architects. And they're really, really good golf courses. And they're important examples of that architect's work. And I feel like restoring them is the best and only option. And I'm really, really strict about that. You know, I, I don't like taking liberties if I say I'm restoring something. And, and I don't tend to take work um, unless the club is behind a pure restoration. So most of the work I've done at places like Hollywood or Round Hill or you know, places I'm working now are strict restoration. I want to put back what, what the old guys did. Um, but Lanark is a different thing. You know, I, I spent a lot of time researching the design history of the place and that golf course evolved a lot over the years from the very beginning. Um, at various times, it's been 27 holes. You know, it, it started, you know, it's divided by a road and, you know, the, the chunks of property the club owned were developed at different times and what they own now is different what they own when they began. So it's evolved a lot over the years. And the more I studied it, I didn't really feel like there was much number one that we could put back you know there, what, there wasn't anything left from the original Alex Finlay course that we could restore because it had been changed so much and the property itself had changed um, but there also wasn't a whole lot when I looked at the old aerial and the old photos you know there, there are a number of old photos of the place they hosted the PGA championship the first PGA championship that was played at stroke play was at Lanark in the 50s um, so we've got a bunch of old photos but I just you know, there was nothing there that screamed, boy, we really need to put that back. That was really cool. Um, and the club was okay with that. You know, so this was really the first opportunity I've had to do something drastically different, really kind of change the character of a golf course without going back to something that was there a hundred years ago. And, and that's been really fun. You know, it, restoring is great um, for a wide variety of reasons having the freedom to do something totally different Atlantic has been a lot of fun for us. And Blake's been great too. I mean, that he's such a creative guy and we've just had a lot of fun 
doing wacky stuff out there and trying to trying to make one another say wow i think um yeah it's it's been a really fun process and brendan Byrne is the superintendent there as well as the general manager and he's been a fantastic client as has the club um so we've had a great time there yeah i highly recommend people going checking out his his photos on twitter he he posts them all the time it's, it's like I, I i'm glued to him um I, I speaking of the above ground features um how does that i get you know most golfers are accustomed to the below ground the the idea of bunkers you know where where features go down what type different things does the above ground feature impact in terms of architecture the the play and just you know on a broader scale your your scale that when you're working with the above ground features Well, you know, I think the, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier with Brooks and Memorial Park, bunkers affect different players differently, obviously. And and the best players at Landmark or most clubs don't really struggle with a typical greenside bunker shot. Whereas a lot of the handicap players, beginners, older players, that's a really hard shot for them. Um, And I think building a berm or a mound or something above ground tends to have a less severe penalty for handicap players. Um, and we don't have a ton of greenside bunkers Atlantic right now. And the ones we built are pretty severe. There are a few that you should definitely avoid at all costs. <laughs> There's a lot of room to play around those, but you don't want to miss right of the first green, for example, or long on the eighth. Um, but I think those are going to be really difficult shots for everybody, not just handicap players. Um, but we put a lot more short, you know, short grass around some of the greens, but just rough around a lot of the greens with some funky, interesting contours. So you can get a weird lie. Um, and in the fairways too, we've built some mounding and some other things instead of bunkers that will offer a different type of recovery and, and a different degree of penalty, um, without beating up the handicap player too much. I hope. I I agree with I think like uneven lies for a good player from rough are going to be are a lot more difficult than a very predictable bunker shot. Yep. And they're easier for the regular golfer from yeah. my experience caddying. It was always easier when somebody was in the rough chipping, you know? I agree. And uh, you know, when we started Atlantic, I think, I think there were like, 15 of the greens, 14, 15, 16 of the greens were bunk, you know, kind of bunkered front, right, front, left, almost every hole. So, if, you know, again, the average player never misses past the hole. They're going to miss right or left. And nine times out of 10, you had been recovering from a bunker. And we tried to undo that completely. You know, there, there are holes where you, there's a bunker left or a bunker right or neither. Um, but I don't know that we have any holes left where, there's bunkers right and left is it you know for the last few years i noticed things with just instagram and i feel like the fascination with people for with seth rayner um you know langford moreau the and then you know that that more trench style bunker um and more geometric design features it's at like a fever pitch, but it's, I've always, it's been interesting because 
from a new design and you know re- renovation standpoint until you guys were doing this i hadn't really seen any of it in america despite like i can tell from just a photo standpoint that that's a popular people it's it appeals to people's eye do you think that it could become kind of a new trend in design going that more that way from the exposed sand maybe maybe um you know, I can't say that we were channeling Rayner or Langford at Lanner necessarily. I, you know, I was thinking more of places like Hunter Combe and Myopia and Brookline. Um, but yeah, I think I think there may be a bit of fatigue from jagged edge, flashy bunkers. Um, you know, it's ironic that you know the reason I'm, we're working at Lanark right now is because Brendan at Lanark loved our work at Hollywood where they have 180 bunkers of every, of every shape and size. And, um, and Atlanta, we're doing almost the opposite, but, um, but I do think that there's, there's a growing reaction to a lot of what's been built over the past decade or two. And, and, you know, the, the blowout style bunker is beautiful, especially in a place where it, it fits naturally, you know, the Sandhills probably started that trend. And, you know, if you look around the golf course at the Sandhills, you see blowouts out in the distance on land that's been grazed for hundreds of years and nobody's ever stuck a shovel in the ground to build them. Um, and places like Pacific Dunes and Barn Boogle and, you know, anywhere somebody's working near the ocean and sand, you're going to have blowout bunkers. And, and it fits those locations. But importing that onto a bunch of inland sites in Illinois or Wisconsin or every state in the union at this point, um, it probably gets a little monotonous and people might be open to the idea of something that looks a little bit different. You know, the, the new South course at Arcadia bluffs is certainly a, oh, yeah, a, that's a good one test too. of that, uh, of that theory of yours. And I played that last summer and really enjoyed it. Um, not necessarily because of the aesthetic, you know, I, I, that's the funny thing to me about, you know, the kind of the current infatuation with Rainer and McDonald um, is that everyone's focused on the, the look of their work and the templates as opposed to just the really cool, interesting golf that they created. You know, um, it's, it's much more than an aesthetic. And, and I think people, you know, I think that's the current bunker craze or the kind of maybe the phase removal of the, the jagged edge blowouts. You know, when minimalism became a really popular thing, it quickly became identified with an aesthetic and and people associated that bunker look with minimalism so that, oh, if we build jagged, natural looking bunkers, we're minimalist too. And, it, you know, completely missing the greater point that minimalism is a, is a philosophy or an approach to construction and design. It has nothing to do with aesthetics. And you know, some of the places where minimalism was first and most notably practiced happen to have that aesthetic, but the aesthetic doesn't make the, doesn't make something minimalist. Um, you know, it's it's a philosophy of design and construction more than anything. The ironic thing too, is from a maintenance standpoint, those above ground features that you're building at, uh, Lanark are, 
more minimal in terms of maintenance than a bunker. We'll see. Um, I look forward to hearing Brendan's thoughts on that, but I, I think, I think they should be. Um, they're certainly a lot cheaper to build. You know, part of what initiated the work we did there or the style of work we did there was the fact that, you know, construction always generates a lot of stuff you need to get rid of, whether it's old greens mix or drain tile or sod. You know, there's a lot of sod that gets stripped when you're doing work and you got to put that somewhere. And they don't have a lot of space. It's a really compact property. They don't have space to store any of that stuff. They don't have a big dump to lose it in. And they certainly didn't want to pay to haul it all off property. So we had to lose it somewhere. Um, but you don't want to bury a bunch of old sod mounds and let that stuff decompose and see what it turns into. So we dug bury pits around the property and buried all the sod in there. Um, but that generated a lot of material that we had to do something with. And if we were going to dig bunkers, we were just going to generate more material that we'd have to lose. So instead of big, building more bunkers, we turned all the material into the above ground stuff that we created. Um, so there was definitely an economy of construction building those things. Um, we were losing material that we had to lose somewhere. And we got to bury a bunch of stuff, sod particularly, that you know, would have cost a lot of money to haul off site. In a way, it was minimal. It was. It was yeah, minimalist it, construction. Absolutely. And, you know, there's no associated cost for bunker liners and bunker sand and, and the things that go with building modern bunkers now, which is getting, you know, that is getting extraordinarily expensive, especially in that part of the country. You know, things are really expensive in the Northeast. Shipping costs, materials costs, bunkers are getting really expensive and the labor to maintain them is really expensive. Um, but construction costs, I'm, I'm sure what we did was a lot less expensive than building a bunch of bunkers. Yeah. And it's the way the old guys did, you know, that's, that's one of the things we're building some, we're restoring some mounting in North Jersey now too. And, and again, the construction process when they built that car, of course, it's a, it's a rocky place and they generated rocks for years there. Um, for the first five years or so of the golf courses existence, members carried a little bag with them as they played golf and they would pick up rocks in the fairways as they played and dump them in piles adjacent to the fairways. That went on for years. Um, so, you know, the, the rocks that were generated in the construction process and the rocks that the members were picking up turned into features on the golf course. And instead of building a bunch of bunkers and rock, Travis used mounds instead. How neat is that? Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's uh, pretty cool. I mean, and evolving, you know, like the more, the more years open, the more mounds and more rock mounds and more. Yeah. It's, it's just kind of a neat little thing. Um, yeah, it tells you how crazy golfers were back in the day, that how badly they wanted a golf course and they were willing to pick up rocks for years. <laughs> um, not sure many people would go for that today. It's almost more, more adventurous, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so the thing you said about Rainer, it, it, you play out of Yamas Hall. Um, and that strikes me as a perfect example where people are fascinated with the templates and everything, but you know, when you, the most, you know, the kind of crescendo of that golf course where it hits the great land is filled with very few templates, you know, on that mm -hmm. 11 through uh, 15 stretch of holes, you know, you start to hit the, you know, you kind of are getting to the meat of the, the guitar solo. If you wanted to uh, compare it to a, like a great rock song and you're hitting these uh, holes and, and very few of them are, are status quo templates obviously you have the knoll but 
and the Eden hole in there, but it, you know, the, the ground is more the star. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, 11 is the maiden and yeah, you mentioned 14 is the knoll, but you know, the 14th at Yemen's doesn't look much like the knoll at piping rock or Scott's Craig. <laughs> you know, it just, it's just, they tack that label on because the green is jacked up in the air, but you know, from T to green, it doesn't really resemble many other knoll holes. And you could say, say the same for the maiden hole, which is a great hole. Um, yeah, I think you know, that was Rainer's to me, that was his most admirable quality was that dude could route a golf course. You know, he found the places for his templates and which is a totally different routing process, I think, than just trying to find the best golf holes on a property. When you're looking for 15 or 18 or 22 template holes on a property, it's a different mindset than just laying something out with no pre, you know, preconceived ideas. But he did it really, really well. You know, he, he found his golf goals on his properties in a way that they just lay beautifully on the ground. And obviously he did a bunch of construction work around his green sites, but from tee to green, his courses work really well and he didn't have to do a lot to build that. Yeah. It's, uh, so I, you know, given the circumstances of the, and you're the first architect on, uh, that I've talked to since this, um, you know, virus and pandemic has kind of broken out in America. And I'm curious, how has your business yet, or is it to be determined been impacted by, by the coronavirus? Oh boy. Um, that's way above my pay grade to try and analyze. Uh, I'm sure it'll be impacted. Um, you know, right now we've got a lot of things that are temporarily, temporarily on hold. Um, from a consulting you know, I, standpoint, have you seen anything with clubs? Everyone's just leery right now. You know, there's so much uncertainty that I think everyone is everyone is hesitant to move forward before we know where we are, number one, and know where we're going. And you know, I feel the same way personally. It's you know, travel's a big part of our job. And I don't see myself getting on an airplane anytime soon. Uh, I love a road trip. I'm happy to drive anywhere in the country for work, but I don't think I'm getting on an airplane. And I suspect a lot of golfers probably feel the same way. Um, I don't know how that impacts places like Bandon or Cabot Cliffs or Stream Song. Um, but I think, you know, there's certainly a massive loss of revenue in the short term that impacts the way golf courses are being maintained right now and are likely to be maintained for the foreseeable future. And maybe that's a good thing. Um, maybe we can stop wasting money on a lot of the things that really aren't important in golf course maintenance and focus on the things that are. And, and maybe that'll lead to more affordable maintenance, therefore more affordable golf. Um, you know, the, the standard of maintenance has gotten so high in this country to its own detriment, really. I mean, there, there is certainly a point of diminishing returns. And I think a lot of clubs went beyond that years ago. And, do you know, that affects construction and design, too. You know, a lot of the things that are being built into golf courses now are, number one, really expensive to install. And number two, really expensive to maintain. And the more things you put underneath a USGA green, the more things there are that can break. And 
you know, that just means you're going to have to dig those greens out more often going forward until you stop putting stuff under the greens that can break. Um, so I hope there's a little bit of a, a little bit of an effect in reining in some of the excesses we've taken to accept as now standard equipment, standard procedure. But I don't know. I, I think people in general, not just golfers tend to forget quickly. And um, I think as soon as golfers get back on their golf courses, they'll, they'll quickly <laughs> start looking at the things the superintendent has been doing for the past three months, as opposed to just being happy they're back outside again. But hopefully that's not the case. Yeah. We'll I'm hope I'm hoping for like a no rake um, movement from this. That would be great. That would be great. And yeah, if you could trust every golfer just to smooth out their tracks with their foot and, and leave about the left, um, that would be great. I mean, they're talking, talking about that possibly being a PGA Tour thing, no rakes for these I like tournaments. It. I like it. Um, How would you compare the feel of this with uh, the 08 financial crash from like just a purely a, a business side of things, like you, the way you feel with you know, golf courses on a business front. Oh boy. Sorry. This is a yeah, heavy again, question. That's, again, so I that's, saved that, it for the end. Yeah. That's beyond my pay grade again. Um, you know, I, I have a hard time comparing. I mean, this, that was, that was scary to me in a certain way. Um, that revolved almost entirely around finances, you know, and this is something completely different, you know, this is something completely different and it, it has massive financial impacts, obviously. Um, but first and foremost, it's about people's health. And, and I like to think that golf can be an important part of getting people back outdoors, getting people back socializing safely, um, I think golf has always had done a poor job of emphasizing the health benefits of getting outside and taking a walk for four hours. And, you know, I've, I've seen a few clubs that have reopened lately that are apologizing for the lack of carts and, and I, I wish they would take a different stance and celebrate it. Um, I'd love to see more people walking as a result of this, but you know, the, this is this is a massive health crisis first and foremost, and and I don't know how you compare that to a strictly financial crisis like we had in in two thousand eight. Um, strictly is the wrong word. I mean, obviously, any financial crisis has massive associated health impacts as well. Um, yeah, this is a this is a a, health, a massive health crisis that is having massive financial implications yes yeah i think that 2008 was probably the other way around yeah yep. yeah i completely agree with that so you know we uh before we get you out of here it'd be remiss to you know i think we the future we'd hopefully do a uh langford barreau pod with a few junkies you know nice but i gotta i gotta ask you you know in terms of from your standpoint you grew up pretty close to Lasonia and I remember you saying when we were on uh when we recorded near Bel Air that uh you know that was kind of one of your first aha moments in terms of Langford Moreau you know what what aspects of their architecture uh do you admire the most 
they were nuts. They were crazy. The scale of their features, like if I go to Lasonia now or Culver, you know, Harrison Hills, the scale of the features those guys built with the equipment they had back then was insane. You know, it's it they moved a lot of material and the boldness of the stuff they built is pretty remarkable. Um, you know, Pete Dye would be the one guy who's probably approached that level of boldness since. Um, but the depth of the bunkers and the size of the bunkers and the movement in the greens is just big and wild and fun. Um, and I love, you know, their best courses, again, going back to where we started, have brilliant green complexes. You go to a place like uh, Kankakee Elks, has some fantastic greens there. And, you know, that's one I'd love to see restored. You know, that unfortunately, Langford's courses have suffered so much neglect over the years. And in a lot of cases, that's helped preserve them, but they're, they're still kind of a shell of what they once were, um, which makes places like Lasonia all the more special that it's presented really, really well. Um, but yeah, there's just a, a, a daring and a boldness to what they did. Um, that it's just, it's fun golf, you know, it's fun golf. A buddy was down at uh, Harrison Hills the other day. He sent me some pictures. There's, they've done a ton of tree removal. Oh, that's good to hear. Like, you know, the, uh, was it the 14th hole, the one that goes down in the bottom before the short par four up that yep. had that green that had all the trees on it. All the trees are off it. Nice. That's a beautiful green. Oh my God. That if you restored that green. Yep. That'd be yeah. bananas. That's a great set of greens. Yeah. You know, yeah, I love seeing their stuff. I wish there was more of it around. You know, it's uh, certainly there's none in my part of the country, but um, yeah, yeah, that's that's the thing. Cool Spent a I love going down to Kankakee or up to Spring Valley. It's as it, it's sad where they're at, but still, it's refreshing that you know so little of it's changed that it could you know when if some if the right thing came up, they could be brushed up and everybody be like whoa wait this place was just sitting here yeah it's a blessing they haven't had the money over the last hundred years to to screw them up you know i'd much rather have them in this state right now than humming along financially with a bunch of extra cash in the bank that somebody got the wrong idea with so um yeah spring valley is another one I, I tend to forget about that place but it's there's a lot of cool stuff there yeah they got that it's got for being 45 minutes from Chicago, it's got topography you see nowhere else in Chicago. No, it's, it's cool. Yeah. It's very cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot of good golf there. Yeah. So, Hey, I appreciate the time. You're uh you're a new, uh new favorite follow on Twitter. You, you've, you've dove <laughs> into the platform and just become a, become an all-star there. Uh, I don't know about that, but that's what, being in quarantine does for you, I guess. It gives you a lot of time to to uh, <laughs> yeah, waste your time on Twitter. It's been fun. There, there are a lot of people on there sharing a lot of really cool stuff. Um, so it's it's easy to get uh, it's easy to go down a rabbit hole on Twitter, certainly. So you're uh, B Schneider one two six. There is it the same on Instagram? I haven't the slightest idea. Yeah, just look uh, up Brian Schneider. We'll we'll include <laughs> it in the show notes, but. I uh I appreciate the time and and uh coming on. It's been long overdue. Yeah, it's been fun, Andy. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We'll uh we'll talk soon. Hopefully uh 
you gotta get out to old town during this uh when you got when you're gonna be driving through there all the time it is a goal yeah i drove past i drove through north carolina yesterday and considered making the detour but i don't know if this is the time yeah i will get there soon no it's it's at the top of my list 